Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Section 10 of The Golden Bough, A Study in Magic Religion, 3rd Edition, Volume 1, Part 1, The Magic Art and the Evolution of Kings, Volume 1, by James Fraser. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings in the public domain. For more information or volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 5. The Magical Control of the Weather. 1. The Public Magician. The patient reader may remember that we were led to plunge into the labyrinth of magic in which we have wandered for so many pages by a consideration of two different types of man-god. This is the clue which has guided our devious steps through the maze, and brought us out at last on a higher ground, whence, resting a little by the way, we can look back over the path we have already traversed, and forward to the longer and steeper road we have still to climb. Two Types of Man-God The Religious and the Magical As a result of the foregoing discussion, the two types of human gods may conveniently be distinguished as the religious and the magical man-god, respectively. In the former, a being of an order different from the superior to man is supposed to become incarnate for a longer or shorter time in a human body manifesting his superhuman power and knowledge by miracles wrought and prophecies uttered through the medium of the fleshy tabernacle in which he has designed to make up his abode this may also appropriately be called the inspired or incarnate type of man-god in it the human body is merely a frail earthly vessel filled with a divine and immortal spirit on the other hand a man-god of the magical sort is nothing but a man who possesses, in an unusually high degree, powers which most of his fellows arrogate to themselves on a smaller scale. For in rude society, there is hardly a person who does not dabble in magic. Thus, whereas a man-god of the former, or inspired type, derives his divinity from a deity who has stooped to hide his heavenly radiance behind a dull mask of earthly mould, a man-god of the latter type draws his extraordinary power from a certain physical sympathy with nature, he is not merely the receptacle of a divine spirit. His whole being, body and soul, is so delicately attuned to the harmony of the world that a touch of his hand or a turn of his head may send a thrill vibrating through the universal framework of things, and conversely, his divine organism is acutely sensitive to such slight changes of environment as would leave ordinary mortals wholly unaffected. By the line between these two types of man-god, however, sharply we may draw it, in theory, is seldom to be traced with the precision in practice, and in what follows I shall not insist on it. Public and private magic. The public magician, often a king. We have seen that in practice the magic art may be employed for the benefit either of individuals or of the whole community, and that according as it is directed to one or other of these two objects, it may be called private or public magic. Further, I pointed out that the public magician occupies a position of great influence, from which, if he is a prudent and able man, he may advance step by step to the rank of a chief or king. Thus, an examination of public magic conduces to an understanding of the early kingship, since in savage and barbarous society many chiefs and kings appear to owe their authority in great measure to their reputation as magicians. The rise of a class of public professional magicians is a great step in social and intellectual progress. 
Among the objects of public utility which magic may be employed to secure, the most essential is an adequate supply of food. The examples cited in preceding pages prove that purveyors of food, the hunter, the fisher, the farmer, all resort to magical practices in the pursuit of their various callings. But they do so as private individuals for the benefit of themselves and their families, rather than as public functionaries acting in the interest of the whole people. It is otherwise when the rites are performed, not by the hunters, the fishers, the farmers themselves, but by professional magicians on their behalf. In primitive society, where uniformity of occupation is the rule, and the distribution of the community into various classes of workers has wholly begun, every man is more or less his own magician. He practices charms and incantations for his own good and the injury of his enemies. But a great step in advance has been taken when a special class of magicians has been instituted. When, in other words, a number of men have been set apart for the express purpose of benefiting the whole community by their skill, whether that skill be directed to the healing of diseases, forecasting of the future, the regulation of the weather, or any other object of general utility. The importance of the means adopted by most of these practitioners to accomplish their ends ought not to blind us to the immense importance of the institution itself. Here is a body of men relieved, at least in the highest stages of savagery, from the need of earning their livelihood by hard manual toil, and allowed, nay, expected, and encouraged to prosecute researches into the secret ways of nature. It was at once their duty and their interest no more than their fellows to acquaint themselves with everything that could aid man in his arduous struggle with nature everything that could mitigate his sufferings and prolong his life. The properties of drugs and minerals, the, the causes of rain and drought, of thunder and lightning, the changes of the seasons, the phases of the moon, the daily and yearly journeys of the sun, the motions of the stars, the mystery of life and the mystery of death, all these things must have excited the wonder of these early philosophers and stimulated them to find solutions of problems that were doubtless often thrust on their attention in the most practical form by the importunate demands of their clients, who expected them not merely to understand, but to regulate the great processes of nature for the good of man. That the first shots fell very far wide of the mark would hardly be helped. The slow, the never-ending approach to trust consists in perpetually forming and testing hypotheses, accepting those which at the time seemed to fit the facts and rejecting the others. The views of natural causation embraced by the savage magician no doubt appeared to us manifestly false and absurd. Yet in their day there were legitimate hypotheses, though they have not stood the test of experience. Ridicule and blame are the just need, not of those who devise these crude theories, but of those who obstinately adhere to them after better had been propounded. Certainly, no men ever had stronger incentives in the pursuit of truth than these savage sorcerers. To maintain at least a show of knowledge was absolutely necessary, and a single mistake detected might cost them their life. This no doubt led them to practice imposture for the purpose of concealing their ignorance, but it also supplied them with the most powerful motive for substituting a real for a sham knowledge, since, if you would appear to know anything, by far the best way is actually to know it. Thus, however, justly we may reject the extravagant pretensions of magicians and condemn the deceptions which they have practised on mankind. The original institution of this class of men has, take it all in all, been productive of an incalculable good to humanity. They were the direct predecessors not merely of our physicians and surgeons but of our investigators and discoverers in every branch of natural science they began the work which has since been carried to such glorious and beneficent issues by their successors in after ages and if the beginning was poor and feeble this is to be imputed to the inevitable difficulties which beset the path of knowledge rather than to the natural incapacity or willful fraud of the men themselves subchapter two magical control of rain part one
one of the chief tasks which the public magician has to perform is to control the weather and especially to ensure an adequate supply of rain the method adopted by the rain-maker is commonly based on homeopathic or imitative magic he seeks to produce rain by imitating it of the things which the public magician sets himself to do for the good of the tribe one of the chief is to control the weather and especially to ensure an adequate fall of rain order is the first essential of life and in most countries the supply of it depends upon showers without rain vegetation withers animals and men languish and die hence in savage communities the rainmaker is a very important personage and often a special class of magicians exist for the purpose of regulating the heavenly water supply the methods by which they attempt to discharge the duties of their office are commonly though not always based on the principle of homeopathic or imitative magic if they wish to make rain they simulate it by sprinkling water or mimicking clouds if their object is to stop rain and cause drought they avoid water and resort to warmth and fire for the sake of drying up the too ambient moisture such attempts are by no means confined as a cultivated reader might imagine to the naked inhabitants of the sultry lands like central australia and some parts of eastern and southern africa where often for months together the pitiless sun beats down out of a blue and cloudless sky on the parched and gaping earth they are or used to be common enough among outwardly civilized folk in the moister climates of europe i will now illustrate them by instances drawn from the practice of both the public and private magic examples of making rain by homeopathic magic or imitative magic thus for example in a village near dorpat in russia when rain was much wanted three men used to climb up the fir trees of an old sacred grove one of them drummed with a hammer a kettle or a small cask to imitate thunder the second knocked two firebrands together and made the sparks fly to imitate lightning and the third who was called the rainmaker had a bunch of twigs with which he sprinkled water from a vessel on all sides to put an end to drought and bring down rain women and girls of the village of Pluska are wont to go naked by night to the boundaries of the village and there pour water on the ground in halmahera or gilolo a large island to the west of new guinea a wizard makes rain by dipping a branch of a particular kind of tree in water and then scattering the moisture from the dripping bough over the ground in Tseram, it is enough to dedicate the bark of a certain tree to the spirits and lay it in water a javanese mode of making rain is to imitate the pattering sound of raindrops by brushing a coconut leaf over the sheath of a betel nut in a mortar in new britain the rainmaker wraps some leaves of a red and green striped creeper in a banana leaf moistens the bundle with water and buries it in the ground then he imitates with his mouth the plashing of rain amongst the omaha indians of north america when the corn is withering for want of rain the members of the sacred buffalo society fill a large vessel with water and dance four times around it one of them drinks some of the water and spurts it in the air making a fine spray in imitation of a mist or drizzling rain then he upsets the vessel spilling the water on the ground whereupon the dancers fall down and drink up the water getting mud all over their faces lastly they squirt the water into the air making a fine mist this saves the corn in springtime the natchez of north america used to club together to purchase favorable weather for their crops from the wizards if rain was needed the wizards fasted and danced with pipes full of water in their mouths the pipes were perforated like the nozzle of a watering can and through the holes the rainmaker blew the water towards that part of the sky where the clouds hung heaviest but if fine weather was wanted he mounted the roof of his hut and with extended arms blowing with all his might he beckoned to the clouds to pass by in time of drought 
the Damahures Indians of Mexico will sometimes throw water towards the sky in order that God may replenish his supply. And in the month of May they always burn the grass so that the whole country is then wrapped in smoke and travelling becomes very difficult. They think that this is necessary to produce rain, clouds of smoke being in their opinion equivalent to rain clouds. Among the Swazis and Hulubis of southeastern Africa, the rain doctor draws water from a river with various mystic ceremonies and carries it into the cultivated field. Here he throws it in jets from his vessel high into the air, and the falling sprays believe to draw down the clouds and make rain by sympathy. To squirt water from the mouth is the West African mode of making rain, and is practiced also by the Wajakas of Kilimanjaro. Making Rain by Homeopathic or Imitative Magic among the Wahama, on the Albert Nyanza Lake, the rainmaker pours water into a vessel in which he has first placed a dark stone as large as the hand. Pounded plants and the blood of a black goat are added to the water, and with a bunch of magic herbs the sorcerer sprinkles the mixture towards the sky. In this charm, special efficiency is no doubt attributed to the dark stone and the black goat, their colour being chosen from its resemblance to that of the rain clouds, as we shall see presently. When the rains do not come in due season, the people of central Angoniland repair to what is called the rain temple. Here they clear away the grass, and the leader pours beer into a pot which is buried in the ground, while he says, Master Choata, you have hardened your heart towards us. What would you have us do? We must perish indeed. Give your children the rains. There is the beer we have given you. Then they all partake of the beer that is left over, even the children being made to sip it. Next they take branches of trees and dance and sing for rain. When they return to the village they find a vessel of water set in a doorway by an old woman. So they dip their branches in it and wave them aloft, so as to scatter the drops. After that the rain is sure to come driving up in heavy clouds. In these practices we see a combination of religion with magic. For while the scattering of the water drops by means of branches is a purely magical ceremony, the prayer for rain and the offering of beer are purely religious rites. At Takitount in Algeria, when the drought is severe, the people prepare a sacrificial banquet, soda, in the course of which they dance, and filling their mouths of water, spirit it into the air cycling, the rain and abundance. Elsewhere in the course of these banquets, it is customary for the same purpose to sprinkle water on children. At Lemcan, in time of drought, water is thrown from terraces and windows on small girls, who pass singing. During the summer months, Frequent droughts occur among the Japanese Alps. To procure rain, a party of hundreds armed with guns climbed to the top of Mount John Drake, one of the most imposing peaks in the range, by kindling a bonfire, discharging their guns, and rolling great masses of rocks down the cliffs. They represent the wished-for storm, and the rain is supposed always to follow within a few days. To make rain, a party of Ainos will scatter water by means of sieves, while others will take a porringer, fit it up with sails and oars as if it were a boat, and then push or draw it about the village and gardens. In Laos, the festival of the New Year takes place about the middle of April and lasts three days. The people assemble in the pagodas, which are decorated with flowers and illuminated. The Buddhist monks perform the ceremonies, and when they come to the prayers for the fertility of the earth, the worshippers pour water into the little holes in the floor of the pagoda as a symbol of the rain which they hope Buddha will send down on the rice fields in due time. In the Mana tribe of northern Australia, the rainmaker goes to a pool and sings over it his magic song. Then he takes some of the water in his hands, brings it and spits it out in various directions. After that he throws water all over himself, 
scatters it about, and returns quietly to the camp. Rain is supposed to follow. Use of human hair and rain charms among the Australian Aborigines. In the Watjobulak tribe of Victoria, the rainmaker dipped a bunch of his own hair in water, sucked out the water and squirted it westward, or he twirled the ball round his head, making a spray like rain. Other Australian tribes employ human hair as a rain charm in other ways. In Western Australia, the natives pluck hair from their armpits and thighs and blow them in the direction from which they wish the rain to come. But if they wish to prevent rain, they light a piece of sandalwood and beat the ground with the burning brand. When the rivers were low and water scarce in Victoria, the wizard used to place human hair in the stream, accompanying the act with chants and gesticulation. But if he wished to make rain, he dropped some human hair in the fire. Hair was never burnt at other times for fear of causing a great fall of rain. The Arab historian Makrizi describes a method of stopping rain, which is said to have been resorted by a tribe of nomads called Alkomar in Hadramaut. They cut a branch from a certain tree in the desert, set it on fire, and then sprinkled the burning brand with water. After that, the vehemence of the rain abated, just as the water vanished when it fell on the growing brand. Some of the eastern Angamis of Manabur are said to perform a somewhat similar ceremony for the opposite purpose in order, namely, to produce rain. Head of the village puts a burning brand on the grave of a man who has died of burns and quenches the brand with water while he prays that rain may fall. Here the pouring out of the fire with water, which is an imitation of rain, is reinforced by the influence of the dead man, who, having been burnt to death, will naturally be anxious for the descent of rain to cool his scorched body and assuage his pangs. Use of fire to stop rain. Other people besides the Arabs have used fire as a means of stopping rain. Thus, the Sulka of New Britain heat stones red hot in the fire and put them out in the rain, or they throw hot ashes in the air. They think that the rain will soon cease to fall, for it does not like to be burned by the hot stones or ashes. The Telugus send a little girl out naked into the rain with a burning piece of wood in her hand, which she has to shoo to the rain. That is supposed to stop the downpour. At Port Stevens in New South Wales, the medicine men used to drive away rain by throwing fire sticks into the air, while at the same time they puffed and shouted. Any man of the Nula tribe in northern Australia can stop rain by simply warming a green stick in the fire and then striking it against the wind. When a Thompson Indian of British Columbia wished to put an end to a spell of heavy rain, he held a stick in the fire, then described a circle with it, beginning at the east and following the sun's course till they reached the east again, towards which quarter he held the stick and addressed the rain as follows. Now then, you must stop raining. The people are miserable. Ye mountains become clear. The ceremony was repeated for all the other quarters of the sky. Various ways of making and stopping rain. To bring on rain, the Ainos of Japan wash their tobacco boxes and pipes in a stream, and the Torajas of Central Salives dip rice spoons in water. On the contrary, during heavy rain, the Indians of Guinea are careful not to wash the inside of their pots, lest by so doing they should cause the rain to fall still more heavily. In Billisport, it is believed that the grain dealer, who has stored large quantities of grain and wishes to sell it dear, resorts to nefarious means of preventing the rain from falling, lest the abundance of rice, which would follow a copious rainfall, should cheapen his wares. To do this, he collects raindrops from the eaves of his house in an earthen vessel and buries the vessel under the grinding mill. After that, 
You shall hear thunder rumbling in the distance like the humming sound of a mill at work, but no rain will fall, for the wicked dealer has shut it up and it cannot get out. Rain-making in Queensland In the torrid climate of Queensland, the ceremonies necessary for ringing showers from the cloudless heaven are naturally somewhat elaborate. A prominent part in them is played by a rain-stick. This is a thin piece of wood about twenty inches long, to which three rainstones and hair cut from the beard have been fastened. The rainstones are pieces of white quartz crystal. Three or four such sticks may be used in the ceremony. About noon, the men who are to take part in it repair to a lonely pool, into which one of them dives and fixes a hollow log vertically in the mud. Then they all go into the water, and, forming a rough circle round the man in the middle who holds the rain stick aloft, they begin stamping with their feet as well as they can, and splashing the water with their hands from all sides on the rain stick. The stamping, which is accompanied by singing, is sometimes a matter of difficulty, since the water may be four feet deep or more. When the singing is over, the man in the middle dives out of sight and attaches the rain stick to the hollow log under water. Then, coming to the surface, he quickly climbs onto the bank and spits out on dry land the water which he imbibed in diving. Should more than one of these rain sticks have been prepared, the ceremony is repeated with each in turn. While the men are returning to camp, they scratch the top of their heads and the inside of their shins from time to time with twigs. If they were to scratch themselves with their fingers alone, they believed that the whole effect of the ceremony would be spoiled. On reaching the camp, they paint their faces, arms, and chests with broad bands of gypsum. During the rest of the day, the process of scratching, accompanied by the song, is repeated at intervals, and thus the performance comes to a close. No woman may set eyes on the rain stick or witness the ceremony of its submergence, but the wife of the chief rainmaker is privileged to take part in the subsequent rite of scratching herself with a twig. When the rain does come, the rain stick is taken out of the water. It has done its work. At Roxburgh, in Queensland, the ceremony is somewhat different. A white quartz crystal, which is to serve as a rainstone, is obtained in the mountains and crushed to powder. Next, a tree is chosen, of which the stem runs up straight for a long way without any branches. Against this trunk, saplings from 15 to 20 feet long are then propped in a circle, so as to form a sort of shed like a bell tent, and in front of the shed, an artificial pond is made in the ground. The men who have collected within the shed now come forth and dancing and singing round the pond mimic the cries and antics of various aquatic birds and animals such as ducks and frogs. Meanwhile the women are stationed some twenty yards or so away. When the men have done pretending to be ducks, frogs and so forth, they march round the women in single file, throwing the pulverized quartz crystals over them. On their side the women hold up wooden troughs, shields, pieces of bark and so on over their heads, making believe that they are sheltering themselves from a heavy shower of rain. Both these ceremonies are cases of mimetic magic. The splashing of the water over the rain stick is as clearly an imitation of a shower as the throwing of the powder quartz crystal over the women. Rainmaking among the Deity of Central Australia The Deity of Central Australia enact a somewhat similar pantomime for the same purpose. In a dry season, their lot is a hard one. No fresh herbs or roots are to be had and as the parched earth yields no grass, the emus, reptiles, and other creatures which generally furnish the natives with food grow so lean and wizened as to be hardly worth eating. At such a time of severe drought, the diary, loudly lamenting the impoverished state of their country and their own half-starved condition, call upon the spirits of their remote predecessors, whom they call the Muramuras, to grant them power to make a heavy rainfall. 
for they believe that the clouds are bodies in which rain is generated by their own ceremonies or those of neighbouring tribes through the influence of the monomores. The way in which they set about drawing rain from the clouds is this. A hole is dug about twelve feet long and eight or ten broad, and over this hole a conical hut of logs and branches is made. Two wizards, supposed to have received a special inspiration from the Muramuras, are bled by an old and influential man with a sharp flint, and the blood, drawn from their arms below the elbow, is made to flow on the other men of the tribe who sit huddled together in the hut. At the same time, the two bleeding men throw handfuls of down about, some of which adheres to the blood-stained bodies of their comrades, while the rest floats in the air. The blood is thought to represent the rain, and the down the clouds. During the ceremony, two large stones are placed in the middle of the hut. They stand for gathering clouds and presage rain. Then the wizards who were bled carry away the two stones for about ten or fifteen miles and place them as high as they can in the tallest tree. Meanwhile, the other men gather gypsum, pound it fine, and throw it into a waterhole. This the Muramuras see, and at once they cause clouds to appear in the sky. Lastly, the men, young and old, surround the hut, and, stooping down, butted it with their heads like so many rams. Thus they force their way through it and reappear on the other side, repeating the process till the hut is wrecked. In doing this, they are forbidden to use their hands or arms, but when the heavy logs alone remain, they are allowed to pull them out with their hands. The piercing of the hut with their heads symbolizes the piercing of the clouds, before the hut, before the rain. Obviously, too, the act of placing high up in the trees the two stones which stand for clouds is a way of making the real clouds to mount up in the sky. Use of foreskins in rain-making The diary also imagined that the foreskins taken from lads of circumcision have a great power of producing rain. Hence, the great council of the tribe always keeps a small stock of foreskins ready for use. They are carefully concealed, being wrapped up in feathers with the fat of the wild dog, and of the carpet snake. A woman may not see such a parcel upon her on any account. When the ceremony is over, the foreskin is buried, its virtue being exhausted. Use of human blood in rain-making ceremonies. After the rains have fallen, some of the tribe always undergo a surgical operation, which consists in cutting the skin of their chest and arms with a sharp flint. The wound is then tapped with a flat stick to increase the flow of blood, and red ochre is rubbed into it. Raised scars are thus produced. The reason alleged by the natives for this practice is that they are pleased with the rain and that there is a connection between the rain and the scars. Apparently the operation is not very painful, for the patient laughs and jokes while it is going on. Indeed, little children have been seen to crowd round the operator and patiently take their turn, but after being operated on, they ran away, expanding their little chests and singing for the rain to beat upon them. However, they were not so well pleased next day when they felt their wounds stiff and sore. The tribes of the Karamundi nation on the River Darling universally believe that rain can be produced as follows. A vein in the arm of one of the men is opened, and the blood allowed to flow into a piece of hollow bark till it forms a little pool. Powdered gypsum and hair from the man's beard are then added to the blood, and the whole is stirred into a thick paste. Afterwards, the mixture is placed between two pieces of bark and put under water in a river or a lagoon, pointed stakes being driven into the ground to keep it down. When it has all dissolved away, the natives think that a great cloud will come bringing rain. From the time the ceremony is performed until the rain falls, men must abstain from intercourse with their wives 
or the charm would be spoiled. In this custom, the body paste seems to be an imitation of the rain cloud. In Java, when rain is wanted, two men will sometimes thrash each other with supple rods till the blood flows down their backs. This streaming blood represents the rain, and no doubt is supposed to make it fall on the ground. Sanguary conflicts as means of making rain. People of Egal, a district of Abyssinia, used to engage in sanguinary conflicts with each other, village against village, for a week to either, every January for the purpose of procuring rain. A few years ago, the Emperor Menelik forbade the custom. However, the following year, the rain was deficient and the popular outcry so great that the Emperor yielded to it and allowed murderous fights to be resumed, but for two days a year only. The winter who mentions the custom regards the bloodshed on these occasions as a proprietary sacrifice offered to spirits who control the showers. But perhaps, as in the Australian and Javanese ceremonies, it is an imitation of rain. The prophets of Baal, who sought to procure rain by cutting the soles of knives till the blood gushed out, may have acted on the same principle. Rain-making among the Katish The Katish tribe of Central Australia believe that the rainbow is the son of the rain, and with filial regard, he is always anxious to prevent his father from falling down. Hence, if it appears in the sky at a time when the rain is wanted, they sing or enchant it in order to send it away. When the head man of the rain totem in this tribe desires to make rain, he goes to the sacred storehouse of his local group. There he paints the holy stones with red ochre and sings over them. And as he sings, he pours water from a vessel on them and on himself. Moreover, he paints three rainbows in red ochre, one on the ground, one on his own body, and one on a shield which he also decorates with zigzag lines of white clay to represent lightning. This shield may only be seen by men of the same exogamous half of the tribe as himself. If men of the other half of the tribe were to see it, the charm would be spoilt. Hence, after bringing the shield away from the sacred place, he hides it in his own camp until the rain has fallen, after which he destroys the rainbow drawings. The intention seems to be to keep the rainbow in custody, and prevent it from appearing in the sky until the clouds have burst and moistened the thirsty ground. To ensure that event, the rainmaker on his return to the sacred storehouse keeps a vessel of water by his side in camp, and from time to time scatters white down about, which is thought to hasten the rain. Meantime, the men who accompanied him to the holy place go away and camp by themselves, for neither they nor he may have any intercourse with the women. The leader may not even speak to his wife who absents herself from the camp at the time of his return to it. When later on she comes back, he imitates the call of the plover, a bird whose cry is always associated with the rainy season in these parts. Early next morning he returns to the sacred storehouse and covers the stones with bushes. After another night passed in silence, he and the other men and women go out in separate directions to search for food. When they meet on their return to camp, they all met with the cry of the plover. Then the leader's mouth is touched with some of the food that has been brought in, and thus the ban of silence is removed. If the rain follows, they attribute it to the magical virtue of the ceremony. If it does not, they fall back on the standing excuse that someone else has kept off the rain by stronger magic. Rain-making among the Runta Among the Arunta tribe of Central Australia, a celebrated rain-maker resides at the present day in what is called by the natives the rain country, Kartwina Gwathcha, a district about 50 miles to the east of Ellis Springs. 
he is the head of a group of people who have water for their totem and when he is about to engage in a ceremony for the making of rain he summons other men of the water totem from neighbouring groups to come and help him when all are assembled they march into camp painted with red and yellow ochre and pipe clay and wearing bunches of eagle hawk feathers on the crown and sides of the head as signal from the rainmaker they all sit down in a line and folding their arms across their breasts chant certain words for a time then at another signal from the master of the ceremonies they jump up and march in signal file to a spot some miles off where they camp for the night at break of day they scatter in all directions to look for game which is then cooked and eaten but on no account may any water be drunk or the ceremony would fail when they have eaten they adorn themselves again in a different style broad bands of white birds down being glued by means of human blood to their stomach legs arms and forehead meanwhile a special hut of boughs has been made by some older men not far from the main camp its floor is strewn with a thick layer of gum leaves to make it soft for a good deal of time has to be spent lying down here close to the entrance of the hut a shallow trench some thirty yards long is excavated in the ground at sunset the performers arrayed in all the finery of white down march to the hut on reaching it the young men go in first and lie face downwards at the inner end where they have to stay till the ceremony is over none of them is allowed to quit it on any pretext meanwhile outside the hut the older men are busy decorating the rainmaker hair girdles covered with white down are placed all over his head while his cheeks and forehead are painted with pipe clay and two broad bands of white down pass across the face one over the eyebrows and the other over the nose the front of his body is adorned with a broad band of pipe clay fringed with white down and rings of white down encircle his arms thus decorated with patches of birds down adhering by means of human blood to his hair and the whole of his body the disguised man is said to be present at a spectacle which once seen can never be forgotten he now takes up a position close to the opening of the hut then the old men sing a song and when it is finished the rainmaker comes out of the hut and stalks slowly twice up and down the shallow trench quivering his body and legs in a most extraordinary way every nerve and fibre seeming to tremble while he is thus engaged the young men who had been lying flat on their faces get up and join the old men in chanting a song with which the movements of the rainmaker seem to accord but as soon as he re-enters the hut the young men at once prostrate themselves again for they must always be lying down when he is in the hut the performance is repeated at intervals during the night and the singing goes on with little intermission until just when the day is breaking the rainmaker executes a final quiver which lasts longer than any of the others and seems to exhaust his remaining strength completely then he declares the ceremony to be over and at once the young men jump to their feet and rush out of the hut screaming in imitation of the spur-winged plover the cry is heard by the men and women who have been left at the main camp and they take it up with weird effect rain-making by imitation of clouds and storm although we cannot perhaps divine the meaning of all the details of this curious ceremony the analogy of the queensland and the deity ceremonies described above suggests that we have here a rude attempt to represent the gathering of rain clouds and the other accompaniments of a rising storm the hut of branches like the structure of logs among the deity and perhaps the conical shed in queensland may possibly stand for the vault of heaven from which the rain clouds represented by the chief actor in his quaint costume of white down come forth to move in ever-shifting shapes across the sky just as he struts quivering up and down the trench the other performers also adorned with birds down who burst from the tent with the cries of plovers probably imitate birds that are supposed to harbinger or accompany rain 
This interpretation is confirmed by other ceremonies in which the performers definitely assimilate themselves to the celestial or atmospheric phenomena which they seek to produce. Thus in Maborg, a small island in the Torres Strait, when a wizard desired to make rain, he took some bushel plant and painted himself black and white, all along same as clouds, black behind, white he go first. He further put a large woman's petticoat to signify raining clouds. On the other hand, when he wished to stop the rain, he put red paint on the crown of his head to represent the shining sun, and he inserted a small bell of red paint in another part of his person. By and by he expelled this ball, like breaking a cloud so that sun he may shine. He then took some bushes and leaves of the pandanus, mixed them together, and placed the compound in the sea. Afterwards he removed them from the water, dried them, and burnt them so that the smoke went up, thereby typifying, as Dr. Haddon was informed, the evaporation and dispersal of the clouds. Again it is said that if a Malay woman puts upon her head an inverted earthenware pan, and then setting it upon the ground, fills it with water and washes the cat in it till the animal is nearly drowned, heavy rain will certainly follow. In this performance, the inverted pan is intended, as Mr. Skeet was told, to symbolize the vault of heaven. Belief that twins can control the weather. There is a widespread belief that twin children possess magical powers over nature, especially over rain and the weather. This curious superstition prevails among some of the Indian tribes of British Columbia and has led them to impose certain singular restrictions or taboos on the parents of twins though the exact meaning of these restrictions is generally obscure. Superstitions as to twins among the Indians of British Columbia. Thus the Tsimshen Indians of British Columbia believe that twins control the weather, therefore they pray to wind and rain, calm down, breath of twins. Further, they think that the wishes of twins are always fulfilled, hence twins are feared because they can harm the man they hate. They can also call the salmon and the olachen or camelfish, and so they are known by a name which means making plentiful. In the opinion of the Quakotl Indians of British Columbia, twins are transformed salmon. Hence, they may not go near water, lest they should be changed back again into the fish. In their childhood, they can summon any wind by motion of their hands, and they can make fair or foul weather, and also cure diseases by swinging a large wooden rattle. Their parents must live secluded in the woods for sixteen months after the birth, doing no work borrowing nobody's canoes, paddles, or dishes, and keeping their faces painted red all the time. If the father were to catch salmon, or the mother were to dig clams, the salmon and the clams would disappear. Moreover, the parents separate from each other, and must pretend to be married to a log, with which they lie down every night. They are forbidden to touch each other, and even their own hair. A year after the birth, they drive wedges into the tree in the woods, asking it to let them work again when four more months have passed. The Nootkaat Indians of British Columbia also believe that twins are somehow related to salmon. Hence among them, twins may not catch salmon, and they may not eat or even handle the fresh fish. They can make fair or foul weather, and can cause rain to fall by painting their faces black and then washing them, which may represent the rain dripping from the dark clouds. Conversely, among the Angolia of Central Africa, there is a woman who stops rain by tying a strip of white calico round her black head probably in imitation of the skies clearing after a heavy storm. The parents of twins among the Nuktas must build a small hut in the woods on the bank of a river, far from the village, and where they must live for two years, avoiding other people. They may not eat or even touch fresh food, particularly salmon. 
superstitions as to twins among the indians of british columbia wooden images and masks of birds and fish are placed round the hut and others representing fish are set near the river for the purpose of inviting all birds and fish to come and see the twins and be friendly to them moreover the father sings a special song praising the salmon and asking them to come and the fish do come in great numbers to see the twins therefore the birth of twins is believed to prognosticate a good year for salmon but though a nukta father of twins has thus to live in seclusion for two years abstaining from fresh meat and attending none of the ordinary feasts he is by a singular exception invited to banquets which consist wholly of dried provisions and at them he is treated with great respect and seated among the chiefs even though he be himself a mere commoner the birth of twins among the nuktas is said to be very rare but one occurred of jewit lived with the tribe he reports that the father always appeared very thoughtful and gloomy and never associated with other people his dress was very plain and he wore around his head the red fillet of bark the symbol of mourning and devotion it was his daily practice to repair to the mountain with a chief's rattle in his hand to sing and pray as Maquino informed me for the fish to come into their waters when not thus employed he kept continuously at home except when sent for us to sing and perform his ceremonies over the sick being considered as a sacred character and one much in favour with the gods among the thompson indians of british columbia twins are called grizzly bear children or hairy feet because they were thought to be under the protection of the grizzly bear and to be endowed by him with special powers such as that of making fair or foul weather after the birth the parents moved away from other people and lived in a lodge made of fir boughs and bark till the children were about four years old during all this time great care was taken of the twins they might not come into contact with other people and were washed with fur twigs dipped in water while they were being washed the father described circles round them with fur boughs singing the song of the grizzly bear superstitions as to twins in west africa with these american beliefs we may compare an african one the negroes of porto novo on the bight of benin hold that twins have for their companions certain spirits or genie like those which animate a kind of small ape which abounds in the forests of guinea when the twins grow up they will not be allowed to eat the flesh of apes and meantime the mother carries offerings of bananas and other dainties to the apes in the forest precisely similar beliefs and customs as to twins prevail in the whole tribe of german togoland there the twins are called children of apes neither they nor their parents may eat the flesh of the particular species of apes with which they are associated and if a hunter kills one of these animals the parents must beat him with a stick but to return to america the Shuswap indians of british columbia like the thompson indians associate twins with the grizzly bear or they call them young grizzly bears according to them twins remain throughout life endowed with supernatural powers in particular they can make good or bad weather they produce rain by spilling water from a basket in the air they make fine weather by shaking a small flat piece of wood attached with stick by a string they raise storms by strewing down on the ends of spruce branches superstitions as to twins among the indians of peru the indians of peru entertain similar notions as the special relation in which twins stand in the rain and the weather for they said that one of each pair of twins was a son of the lightning and they called the lightning the lord and creator of rain and prayed to him to send showers the parents of twins had to fast for many days after the birth abstain from salt and pepper that they might not have intercourse with each other in some parts of peru this period of fasting and abstinence lasted six months 
In other parts, both the father and the mother had to lie down on one side, with one leg drawn up and a bean placed in the hollow of the ham. In this position, they had to lie without moving for five days. Two of their heat and sweat of their bodies, the beans began to sprout. Then they changed over to the other side, and lay on it in like manner for five days, fasting in the way described. When the ten days were up, their relations went out to hunt, and having killed and skinned a deer, they made a robe of its hide, under which they caused the parents of the twins to pass, with cords about their necks, which they afterwards wore for many days. If the twins died young, their bodies enclosed in pots were kept in the house as sacred things. But if they lived, and it happened that a frost set in, the priests sent for them, together with all the persons who had hair lips or had been born feet foremost, and rated them soundly for being the cause of the frost, in that they had not fasted from salt and pepper. Wherefore they were ordered to fast for ten more days in the usual manner, and to abstain from their wives, and to wash themselves, and to acknowledge and confess their sins. After their normal conversion to Christianity, the Peruvian Indians retained their belief that one of the twins was always the son of the lightning, and oddly enough, they regularly gave him the name of St. James, Santiago. The Spanish Jesuit, who reports the custom, was at a loss to account for it. It could not, he thought, have originated in the name of Bonerds, or the son of thunder, which Christ applied to the two brothers James and John. He suggests two explanations. The Indians may have adopted the name because they had heard a phrase used by Spanish children when it thunders, the horse of Santiago is running, or it may have been because they saw that the Spanish infantry in battle before they fired their arquebuses always cried out, Santiago, Santiago. For the Indians called the arquebus Ilapa, that is, lightning, and they might easily imagine that the name which they heard shouted just before the flash and roar of the guns was that of Spanish god of thunder and lightning. However, they came by the name. They made such frequent and superstitious use of it that the church forbade any Indian to bear the name of Santiago. Superstitions as to Twins in Africa The same power of influencing the weather is attributed to twins by the Barunga, a tribe of Bantu Negroes who inhabit the shores of Delonga Bay in southeastern Africa. They bestowed the name of Tolo, that is, the sky, on a woman who has given birth to twins, and the infants themselves are called the children of the sky. Now when the storms, which generally burst in the months of September and October, have been looked for in vain, when a drought with this prospect of famine is threatening, and all nature is scorched and burned up by a sun that has shone for six months on a cloudless sky, is panting for the beneficent showers of the South African spring. The women perform ceremonies to bring down the long for rain on the parched earth. Stripping themselves of all their garments, they assume in their stead girdles and headdresses of grass, or short petticoats made of the leaves of a particular sort of creeper. Thus attired, uttering peculiar cries and singing, ribald songs, they go about from well to well, cleansing them of the mud and impurities which have accumulated in them. The wells, it may be said, are merely holes in the sand where a little turbid, unwholesome water stagnates. Further, the women must repair to the house of one of their gossips who has given birth to twins, and must trench her with water, which they carry in little pitchers. Having done so, they go on their way, shrieking out the loose songs and dancing in modest dances. No man may see these leaf-clad women going their rounds. If they meet a man, they maul him and thrust him aside. When they have cleansed the wells, they must go and pour water on the graves of their ancestors in the sacred grove. It often happens, too, that, at the bidding of the wizard, they go and pour water on the grave of twins, for they think that the grave of a twin ought always to be moist, for which reason twins are regularly buried near a lake. 
If all their efforts to procure rain prove abortive, they will remember that such and such a twin was buried in a dry place on the side of a hill. No wonder, says a wizard in such a case, that the sky is fiery. Take up his body and dig him a grave on the shore of a lake. His orders are at once obeyed, for this is supposed to be the only means of bringing down the rain. The Swiss missionary who reports this strange superstition has also suggested what appears to be his true explanation. He points out that, as the mother of twins is called by the Barunga, the sky, they probably think that to pour water on her is equivalent to pouring water on the sky itself, and if the water be poured on the sky, it will, of course, drip through it as through the nozzle of a gigantic watering pot, and fall on the earth beneath. A slight extension of the same train of reasoning explains why the desired result is believed to be expedited by drenching the graves of twins who are the children of the sky. Among the Zulus, twins are supposed to be able to foretell the weather, and people who want rain will go to a twin and say, Tell me, do you feel ill today? If he says he feels quite well, they know it will not rain. The Wanyamyesi, a large tribe of Central Africa to the south of the Victorian Yanza, also believe in the special association of twins with weather. For amongst them, when a twin is about to cross a river, stream, or lake, he must fill his mouth full of water and spurt it out over the surface of the river or lake, adding, I am a twin, Nana Impasa, and he must do the same if a storm arises on a lake over which he is sailing. Were he to admit the ceremony, some harm might befall him or his companions. In this tribe, the birth of twins is comparatively common, as attended by a number of ceremonies. Old women march about the village collecting gifts for the infants while they drum with a hoe on a piece of oxide and sing an obscene song in praise of the father. Further, two little fetish huts are built for the twins before their mother's house, and here people sacrifice them in season and out of season, especially when somebody is sick or about to go on a journey or to the wars. If one or both twins die, two aloes are planted beside the little fetish hut. Lastly, the Hindus of the central provinces of India believe that a twin can save the crops from the ravages of hail and heavy rain if he will only paint his right buttock black and his left buttock some other colour, and thus adorned, go and stand in the direction of the wind. The Rainmaker assimilates himself to rain. Many of the foregoing facts strongly support an interpretation which Professor Oldenburg has given of the rules to be observed by a Brahmin who would learn a particular hymn of the ancient Indian collection known as the Samaveda. The hymn bears the name of the Sakvari Song, was believed to embody the might of Indra's weapon, the thunderbolt, and hence on account of the dreadful and dangerous potency with which it was thus charged. The bold student who essayed to master it had to be isolated from his fellow men and to retire from the village into the forest. Here for a space of time, which might not vary according to different doctors of the law, from one to twelve years, he had to observe certain rules of life among which were the following. Thrice a day he had to touch water. He must wear black garments and eat black food. When it rained, he might not seek the shelter of a roof, but had to sit in the rain and say, Water is a Sakvari song. When the lightning flashed, he said, That is like the Sakvari song. When the thunder pealed, he said, The Great One is making a great noise. He might never cross a running stream without touching water. He might never set foot on a ship unless his life were in danger even then he must be sure to touch water when he went on board for in water so ran the saying lies the virtue of the sakvari song when at last he had allowed to learn the song itself he had to dip his hands in a vessel of water in which plants of all sorts had been placed if a man walked in the way of all these precepts the rain god parjanya it was said would send rain at the wish of that man it is clear as professor oldenburg well points out that 
all these rules are intended to bring the brahmin into union with water to make him as it were an ally of the water powers and to guide him against their hostility the black garments and the black food have the same significance no one will doubt that they refer to the rain clouds when he remembers that a black victim is sacrificed to procure rain it is black but such is the nature of rain in respect of another rain charm it is said plainly he puts on a black garment edged with black for such is the nature of rain we may therefore assume that here in the circle of ideas and ordinances of the vedic schools there have been preserved magical practices of the most remote antiquity which were intended to prepare the rainmaker for his office and dedicate him to it on the contrary the maker of dry weather must himself be dry it is interesting to observe that where an opposite result is desired primitive logic enjoins the weather doctor to observe precisely opposite rules of conduct in the tropical island of java where the rich vegetation attests the abundance of the rainfall ceremonies for the making of rain are rare but ceremonies for the prevention of it are not uncommon when a man is about to give a great feast in the rainy season and has invited many people he goes to a weather doctor and asks him to prop up the clouds that may be lowering if the doctor consents to exert his professional powers he begins to regulate his behaviour by certain rules as soon as his customer has departed he must observe a fast and might neither drink nor bathe what little he eats must be eaten dry and in no case he may touch water the host on his side and his servants both male and female must neither wash clothes nor bathe so long as the feast lasts and they have all during its continuance to observe strict chastity the doctor seats himself on a new mat in his bedroom and before a small oil lamp he murmurs shortly before the feast takes place the following prayer or incantation grandfather and grandmother sorokel the names since be taken random others are sometimes used return to your country akamat is your country put down your water cask close it properly that not a drop may fall out while he utters his prayer the sorcerer looks upwards burning incense the while so among the toradges of central salives the rain doctor sando whose special business is to drive away rain takes care not to touch water before during or after the discharge of his professional duties he does not bathe he eats with unwashed hands he drinks nothing but palm wine and if he has to cross a stream he is careful not to step in the water having thus prepared himself for his task he has a small hut built for himself outside of the village in a rice field and in this hut he keeps up a little fire which on no account may be suffered to go out in the fire he burns various kinds of wood which i suppose to possess the property of driving off rain and he puffs in the direction from which the rain threatens to come holding in his hand a packet of leaves and bark which derive a similar cloud-compelling virtue not from their chemical composition but from their names which happens to signify something dry or volatile if clouds should appear in the sky while he is at work he takes lime in the hollow of his hand and blows it towards them the lime being so very dry is obviously well adapted to disperse the damp clouds should rain afterwards be wanted he has only to pour water on his fire and immediately the rain will descend in sheets so in santa cruz and reef islands when the man who has power of rain wishes to prevent it from falling he will abstain from washing his face for a long time and will do no work lest he should sweat and his body be wet for they think that if his body be wet it will rain on the other hand when he desires to bring on rain he goes into the house where the spirit or ghost of the rain is believed to reside and there he sprinkles water at the head of the ghost post doka in order that showers may fall to make wet weather you must be wet to make dry weather you must be dry 
the reader will observe how exactly the javanese and toradja observances which are intended to prevent rain form the antithesis of the indian observances which aim at producing it the indian sage is commanded to touch water thrice a day regularly as well as on various special occasions the javanese and toradja wizards may not touch it at all the indian lives out in the forest and even when it rains he may not take shelter the javanese and the toradja sit in a house or a hut the one signifies his sympathy with water by receiving the rain on his person and speaking of it respectively the others light a lamp or a fire and do their best to drive the rain away yet the principle on which all three act is the same each of them by a sort of childish make-believe identifies himself with the phenomenon which he desires to produce it is the old fallacy that the effect resembles its cause if you would make wet weather you must be wet if you would make dry weather you must be dry rain-making in southeastern europe by drenching with water a leaf-clad girl or boy who represents vegetation in southeastern europe at the present day ceremonies are observed for the purpose of making rain which not only rest on the same general train of thought as the preceding but even in their details resemble the ceremonies practised with the same intention by the baronga of de Bay. among the greeks of thessaly and macedonia when a drought has lasted a long time it is customary to send a procession of children round to all the wells and springs of the neighbourhood at the head of the procession walks a girl adorned with flowers whom her companions drench with water at every halting pace while they sing an invocation of which the following is part perperia or fresh bedowed fresh in all the neighbourhood by the woods on the highway as thou goest to god now pray o my god upon the plain send thou us a still small rain that the fields may fruitful be and vines in blossom we may see that the grain be full and sound and wealthy grow the folks around rain-making in servia in the time of drought the servians strip a girl to her skin and clothe her from head to foot in grass herbs and flowers even if has been hidden behind a veil of living green thus disguised she is called the dodola and goes through the village with a troop of girls they stop before every house the dolora keeps turning herself round and dancing while the other girls form a ring about her singing one of the dodora songs and the housewife pours a pail of water over her one of the songs they sing runs thus we go through a village the clouds go in the sky we go faster faster go the clouds they have overtaken us and wetted the corn and the vine rain-making in romania a similar custom is observed in greece and romania in romania the rain-making is called papuruda or baburuda she is a gypsy girl who goes naked except for a short skirt of dwarf elder sambucus ebulus or of corn and vines thus scantily attired the girls go in procession from house to house seeing for rain and are drenched by the pavement with buckets of water the ceremony regularly takes place all over romania on the third tuesday after easter but it may be repeated at any time of drought during the summer but the romanians have another way of procuring rain they make a clay figure to represent drought cover it with a pole and place it in an open coffin girls crouch round the coffin and lament saying drought scoloi is dead lord give us rain and the coffin is carried by children in funeral procession with a burning wax candle before it while lamentations fill the air finally they throw the coffin and the candle into a stream or a well rain-making in bulgaria when rain is wanted in bulgaria the people dress up a girl in branches of nut trees flowers and the green stuff of beans potatoes and onions she carries a nosegay of flowers in her hand 
and is called Dejulju or Peperuga. Attended by a train of followers, she goes from house to house and is received by the good man with a kettle of water on which flowers are swimming. With this water he drenches her while the song is sung. The Peperuga flew, God give rain, that the corn, the millet, and the wheat may thrive. Rain making in Macedonia and Dalmatia. Sometimes the girl is dressed in flax to the girdle. At Melanic, the great town of Macedonia, poor orphan boy parades the streets in times of drought, decked with ferns and flowers, and attended by other boys of about the same age. The women shower water and money on him from the windows. He is called Dudul, and as they march along, the boys sing a song which begins, Hail, hail, Dudul, bring us both maize and wheat. In Dalmatia, also their custom is observed. The performer is a young, unmarried man who is dressed up, dances, and has water poured over him. He goes by the name of Prebats, and is attended by companions called Reporouche, who are young bachelors like himself. In such customs, the leaf-clad person appears to personify vegetation, and the drenching of him or her with water is certainly an imitation of rain. The words of the Serbian song, however, taken in connection with the constant movement which the chief actress in the performance seems expected to keep up, points to some comparison of the girl or her companions to clouds moving through the sky. This again reminds us of the old quivering movement kept up by the Australian rainmaker, who, in his disguise of white down, may perhaps represent a cloud. The King of Rain in India At Pune in India, when rain is needed, the boys dress up one of their number in nothing but leaves and call him King of Rain, Baruj Raja. Then they go round to every house in the village, where the householder or his wife sprinkles a rain king with water and gives the party food of various kinds. When they have thus visited all the houses, they strip the rain king of his leafy robes and feast upon what they have gathered. Rainmaking in Armenia Similar rain charms are practiced in Armenia, except that there the representative of vegetation is an effigy or doll, not a person. The children dress up a broomstick as a girl and carry it from house to house. Before every house they sing a song of which the following is one version. Nerin, Nerin is come. The wondrous maiden is come. A shirt of red stuff she has put on. With a red girdle she is girdled. Bring water to pour on her head. Bring butter to smear on her hair. Let the blessed rain fall. Let the fields of your fathers grow green. Give our Nerin her share. And we will eat and drink and be merry. The children are asked, will you have it from the door or from the garret window? If they choose the door, the water is poured on Nurin from the window, and if they choose the window, it is poured on her from the door. At each house they receive presents of butter, eggs, rice, and so forth. Afterwards they take Nurin to a river and throw her into the water. Sometimes the figure has a head of a pig or a goat and is covered with boughs. At Agen in Armenia, when rain is wanted, boys carry about an effigy, which they call Chichi Mama or the drenched mother, as they interpret the phrase. As they go about, they ask, What does Chi-Chi mother want? The answer is, She wants wheat in her bins, she wants bread on her bread hooks, and she wants rain from God. The people pour water on her from roofs, and rich people make presents to the children. At Orfa in Armenia, the children in time of drought make a rain bride, which they called Chimchi Gilin. They say this means in Turkish, shovel bride. While they carry it about, they say, What does Chin... She Gillen want. She wishes mercy from God. She wants offerings of lambs and rams. And the crowd responds, Give my God, give rain, give a flood. The rain bride is then thrown into the water. Rain making in Palestine and Moab. At Kerak in Palestine, 
Whenever there is a drought, the Greek Christians dress up a winnowing fork in women's clothes. They call it the bite of God. The girls and women carry from house to house, singing doggerel songs. We are told that the bride of God is drenched with water or thrown into a stream, but the charm would hardly be complete without this feature. Similarly, when rain is much wanted, the Arabs are more attire a dummy in the robes and ornaments of a woman and call it the mother of the rain. A woman carries in possession past the houses of the village or the tents of the camp, singing, O mother of the rain, O immortal, moisten our sleeping seeds, moisten the sleeping seeds of the sheik who is ever generous. She is gone, the mother of the rain, to bring the storm. When she comes back, the crops are as high as the walls. She is gone, the mother of the rain, to bring the winds. When she comes back, the plantations have attained the height of lances. She is gone, the mother of the rain, to bring the thunders. When she comes back, the crops are as high as camels. And so on. End of section 10. Section 11 of The Golden Bell, Volume 1. Part 1. The Magic Art and the Evolution of Kings, Volume 1. By James Fraser. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 5. Subchapter 2. Magical Control of the Rain. Part 2. Rain-making by bathing and sprinkling of water. Bathing is practiced as a rain charm in some parts of southern and western Russia. Sometimes after service in church, the priest in his robes has been thrown down on the ground and drenched with water by his parishioners. Sometimes it is women who, without stripping off their clothes, bathe in crowds on the day of St. John the Baptist, while they dip in the water a figure made of branches, grass, and herbs, which is supposed to represent the saint. In Kursk, a province of southern Russia, when rain is much wanted, the women seize a passing stranger and throw him into the river, or so see him from head to foot. Later on, we shall see that a passing stranger is often taken for a deity or the personification of some natural power. It is recorded in official documents that during a drought in 1790, the peasants of Sherelts and Werbelts collected all the women and compelled them to bathe in order that rain might fall. An Armenian rain charm is to throw the wife of a priest into the water and drench her. The Arabs of North Africa fling a holy man willy-nilly into a spring as a remedy for drought. In Minahasa, a province of North Salibs, the priest bathes as a rain charm. In central Salibs, when there has been no rain for a long time and the rice stalks begin to shrivel up, many of the villagers, especially the young folk, go to a neighbouring brook and splash each other with water, shouting noisily or squirt water on one another through bamboo tubes. Sometimes they imitate the plump of rain by smacking the surface of the water with their hands or by placing an inverted cord on it and drumming on the cord with their fingers. The Karobataks of Sumatra have a rain-making ceremony which lasts a week. The men go about with bamboo squirts and the women with bowls of water, and they drench each other or throw the water into the air and cry, The rain has come, when it drips down on them. In Kumaon, a district of northwest India, when rain falls, they sink a Brahmin up to his lips in a tank or pond, where he repeats the name of a god of rain for a day or two. When this rite is duly performed, rain is sure to fall. For the same purpose, village girls in the Punjab will pour a solution of cow dung and water upon an old woman who happens to pass, or they will make her sit down under the footsprout of a house and get a wetting when it rains. In the Salak district of Sumatra, when a drought has lasted a long time, a number of half-naked women take a half-witted man to a river, and there they sprinkle him with water 
as a means of compelling the rain to fall. In some parts of Bengal, when drought threatens the country, troops of children of all ages go from house to house and roll and tumble in puddles, which have been prepared for the purpose by pouring water into the courtyards. This is supposed to bring down rain. Curses supposed to cause rain. Again, in Dabrajur, a village in the Burkham district of Bengal, when rain has been looked for in vain, people will throw dirt or filth on the houses of their neighbours who abuse them for doing so, or they drench the lame, the halt, the blind, and other infirm persons who are reviled for their pains by the victims. This vituperation is believed to bring about the desired result by drawing down showers on the parched earth. Similarly, in the Shafur district of the Punjab, it is said to be customary in time of drought to spill a pot of filth on the threshold of a notorious old shrew, in order that the fluent stream of foul language in which she vents her feelings may accelerate the lingering rain. Beneficial Effect of Curses and Abuse In these later customs, the means adopted for bringing about the desired result appear to be not so much imitative magic as a beneficent effect which, curiously enough, is often attributed to curses and maledictions. Thus, in the Indian district of Bihar, much virtue is ascribed to abuse which is supposed in some cases to bring good luck. People, for example, who accompany a marriage procession to the bride's house are often foully abused by the women of the bride's family in the belief that this contributes to the good fortune of the newly married pair. So in Bahar on Jamad Day, which falls on the second day of the bright period of the moon next to that during which the Desira festival takes place, brothers are reviled by sisters to their heart's content because it is thought that this will prolong the lives of the brothers and bring them good luck. Further, in Bihar and Bengal, it is deemed very unlucky to look at the new moon of Badon, August. Whoever does so is sure to meet with some mishap, or to be falsely accused of something. To avert these evils, people are commonly advised to throw stones or brickbats into their neighbours' houses, for if they do so, and are reviled of their pains, they will escape the threatened evils, and the neighbours who abuse them will suffer in their stead. Hence the day of the new moon in this month is called the Day of Stones. At Benares a regular festival is held for the purpose on the fourth day of Badon, which is known as the Cult Festival of the North. On the Kurda estate in the Orissa Gardens and fruit trees are conspicuously absent, the peasants explain their absence by saying that from time immemorial they have held it lucky to be annoyed and abused by their neighbours at a certain festival, which answers to the Neshti Chandra in Bengal. Hence, in order to give ample ground of offence, they mutilate the fruit trees and trample down the gardens of their neighbours, and so court fortune by drawing down on themselves the wrath of the injured owners. At Kranganor, in the native state of Cochin, there is a shrine of the goddess Bhagavati, which is much frequented by pilgrims in the month of Minam, March April. From all parts of Cochin, Malabar, and the Travancore crowds flock to attend the festival, and the high roads ring with the shouts of Nada Nada, March March. They desecrate the shrine of the goddess in every conceivable way, discharge volleys of stones and filth, and level the most opprobrious language at the goddess herself. These proceedings are supposed to be acceptable to her. The intention of the pilgrimage is to secure immunity from disease during the succeeding year. In some causes a curse may, like rags and dirt, be supposed to benefit a man by making him appear vile and contemptible and thus diverting from him the evil eye and other malignant influences which were attracted by beauty and prosperity but repelled by their opposites. Among the huzzles of the Carpathians, if a herdsman or cattle owner suspects himself of having the evil eye, he would charge one of his household to call him a devil or a robber every time he goes near the cattle. 
for he thinks that this will undo the effect of the evil eye. Among the chams of Cambodia and Annam, while the corpse is being burned on the pyre, a man who bears the title of the Master of Sorrows remains in the house of the deceased and loads it with curses, out of which he beseeches the ghost not to come back and torment his family. These last curses are clearly intended to make his old home unattractive to the spirit of the dead. Estonian fishermen believe that they never have had good luck as when someone is angry with them and curses them. Hence, before a fisherman goes out to fish, he will play a rough practical joke on a comrade in order to be abused and execrated by him. The more his friend storms and curses, the better he is pleased. Every curse brings at least three fish into his net. There is a popular belief in Berlin and the neighbourhood that if you wish a huntsman good luck when he is going out to shoot deer, he will be certain never to get a shot at all. To avert the ill luck caused by such a wish, Hunter must throw a broomstick at the head of his well-wisher. If he is really to have luck, he must wish that he may break his neck, or both his neck and his legs. The wish is expressed with pregnant brevity in the phrase, Now then, neck and leg. The intention of such curses may be to put the fish or the deer off the guard, or as we shall see later on, animals are commonly supposed to understand human speech, and even to overhear what is said of them many miles off. Accordingly, if they hear a fisherman or a hunter flouted, uh, vituperated, they will think too meanly of him to go out of his way, and will fall an easy prey to his net or his gun. When a Greek sower sowed coming, he had to curse and swear, or the crop would not turn out well. Roman writers mention a similar custom observed by the sowers of Rue and Basil, and hedge doctors in ancient Greece laid it down as a rule that, in cutting black hellebore, you should face eastward and curse. Perhaps the bitter language was supposed to strengthen the bitter taste, and hence the medical virtue, of these plants. At Lindus, on the island of Rhodes, it was customary to sacrifice one or two plough oxen to Hercules with curses and precations. And here we are told that the sacrifice was deemed invalid if a good word fell from anyone's lips during the rite. The custom was explained by a legend that Hercules had laid hands on the oxen of a ploughman and cooked and devoured them, while their owner, unable to defend his beasts, stood far off and vetted his anger in a torrent of abuse and execration. Hercules received his maledictions with a roar of laughter, aborted him his priest, and bade him always sacrifice in the very same execrations, for he had never dined better in his life. Religion is plainly a fiction devised to explain the ritual. We may conjecture that the curses were intended to palliate the slaughter of a sacred animal. The subject will be touched on in a later part of this work. Here we must return to rainmaking. Rainmaking by ploughing Women are sometimes supposed to be able to make rain by ploughing or pretending to plough. Thus the Meshores and Crusers of the Caucasus have a ceremony called ploughing the rain, which they observe in time of drought. Girls yoke themselves to a plough and drag it into a river, wading in the water up to their girdles. In the same circumstances, Armenian girls and women do the same. The oldest woman, or the priest's wife, wears the priest's dress, while the others, dressed as men, drag the plough through the water against the stream. In the Caucasian province of Georgia, when a drought has lasted long, marriageable girls are yoked in couples with an ox yoke on their shoulders, a priest holds the reins, and, thus harnessed, they wade through rivers, puddles, and marshes, praying, screaming, weeping, and laughing. In a district of Transylvania, when the ground is parched with drought, some girls strip themselves naked, and led by an older woman, who is also naked, they steal a harrow and carry it across the field to a brook, where they set it afloat. Next they sit in the harrow and keep a tiny flame burning on each corner of it for an hour, 
then they leave the harrow in the water and go home. A similar rain charm is resorted to in some parts of India. Naked women drag a plough across the field by night, while the men keep carefully out of the way, for their presence would break the spell. As performed at Chulnar in Bengal on the 24th of July, 1891, the ceremony was this. Between nine and ten in the evening, a barber's wife went from door to door and invited the women to engage in ploughing. They all assembled in a field from which the men were excluded. Three women of a husbandman's family then stripped themselves naked. Two of them were yoked like oxen to the plough, while the third held the handle. They next began to imitate the operation of ploughing. The one who held the plough cried out, O Mother Earth, bring parched grain, water, and chaff. Our stomachs are breaking to pieces from hunger and thirst. Then a landlord and a accountant approached them and laid down some grain, water, and chaff in the field, and that the women dressed and returned home. By the grace of God, adds the gentleman who reports the ceremony, the weather changed almost immediately, and we had a good shower. Sometimes, as they drew the plough, the women sing hymn to Vishnu, in which they seek to enlist his sympathy by emulating the ills which the people are suffering from the want of rain. In some cases, they discharge volleys of abuse at the village officials, and even at the landlord, whom they compelled to drag the plough. These ceremonies are all the more remarkable because, in ordinary circumstances, Hindu women never engage in agricultural operations like ploughing and harrowing. Yet in drought it seems to be women of the highest, or Brahmin caste, who are chosen to perform what, at other times, would be regarded as a menial and degrading task. Occasionally, when hesitation is felt at subjecting Brahmin ladies to this indignity, they are allowed to get off by merely touching the plough early in the morning, before people are astir. The real work is afterwards done by the ploughmen. In Manipur, the prosperity of all classes depends on the abundance and regularity of the rainfall. Hence, the people have many rites and ceremonies for the making of rain. Thus, in times of drought, 108 girls milk 108 cows in the temple of Govinji, the most popular incarnation of Krishna in the country. If this fails, the women throw their dun pounders into the nearest pool, and at the dead of night strip themselves naked and plough. There is a Burmese superstition that, if a harrow has a flaw in it, no rain will fall till the faulty harrow has been decked with flowers broken and thrown into the river. Further, the owner should have his hair cropped, and being adorned with flowers should dance and carry the harrow to the water, otherwise the country is sure to suffer from drought. The Tarahumara Indians of Mexico dip the plough in water before they use it, that it may draw rain. Making rain by means of the dead. Sometimes a rain charm operates through the dead. Thus in New Caledonia, the rainmakers blackened themselves all over, dug up a dead body, took the bones to a cave, jointed them, and hung the skeleton over some taro leaves. Water was poured over the skeleton to run down on the leaves. They believed that the soul that had ceased took up the water, converted it into rain, and showered it down again. In some parts of New Caledonia, the ceremony is somewhat different. A great quantity of provisions is offered to the ancestors, being laid down before their skulls in the sacred place. In front of the skulls, a number of pots full of water are set in a row, and each pot is deposited a sacred stone, which has more or less the shape of a skull. The rainmaker then prays to the ancestors to send rain. After that, he climbs a tree with a branch in his hand, which he waves about to hasten the approach of the rain clouds. The ceremony is a mixture of magic and religion. The prayers and offerings to the ancestors are purely religious, while the placing of the skull-like stones in water and the waving of the branch are magical. In Russia, if common report may be believed, it is not long since the peasants in a district that chanced to be afflicted with drought used to dig up the corpse of someone who had drunk himself to death and seek it in the nearest swamp or lake, fully persuaded that this would ensure the fall of the needed rain. 
In 1868, the prospect of a bad harvest caused by a prolonged drought induced the inhabitants of a village in the Tarashchansk district to dig up the body of a Roskolnik, or dissenter, who had died in the preceding December. Some of the party beat the corpse, or what was left of it, about the head, exclaiming, Give us rain, while others poured water in it through the sieve. Here the pouring of water through a sieve seems plainly an imitation of a shower and reminds us of the manner in which the strepsades in aristophanes imagined that rain was made by zeus an armenian rain charm is to dig up a skull and throw it into running water at orpha for this purpose they prefer the skull of a jew which they cast at the pool of abraham in mysore people think that if a leper is buried instead of being burnt as he ought to be rain would not fall hence they have been known to descend to buried lepers in time of drought in hal mahiro there is a practice of throwing stones on a grave in order that the ghost may fall into a passion and avenge the disturbance as he imagines by sending heavy rain this may explain a rain charm which seems to have been practised by the mauritanians in antiquity a mound in the shape of a man lying on his back was pointed out as a grave of the giant antaeus and if any earth was dug up and removed from it rain fell to the soil was replaced Perhaps the rain was a revenge the surly giant took for being wakened from his long sleep. Sometimes, in order to procure rain, the Torejas of sensual sleeps make an appeal to the pity of the dead. Thus, in the village of Kalingoa, in Kadombuku, there is a grave of a famous chief, the grandfather of the present ruler. When the land suffers from unseasonable drought, the people go to this grave, pour water on it, and say, O grandfather, pity on us. If it is your will that this year we should eat, then give rain. After that, they hang a bamboo full of water over the grave. There is a small hole in the lower end of the bamboo, so that the water drips from it continually. The bamboo is always refilled with water until rain drenches the ground. Here, as in New Caledonia, we find religion blent with magic, for the prayer of the dead chief, which is purely religious, is egged out with a magical imitation of rain at his grave. We have seen that the Baronga of Delagoa Bay drenched the tombs of their ancestors, especially the tombs of twins, as a rain charm. In Zululand, the native girls form a procession and carry large pots of water to a certain tree which chances to be on a mission station. When the girls are asked why they did this, they said that an old ancestor of theirs had been buried under the tree, and, as he was a great rainmaker in his life, they always came and poured water on his grave in time of drought, in order that he might send them rain. This ceremony partakes of the nature of religion, since it implies an appeal for help to a deceased ancestor. Purely religious, on the other hand, are some means adopted by the Herero of southwestern Africa to procure rain. If a drought has lasted long, the whole tribe goes with his cattle to the grave of some eminent man, and may be the father or grandfather of the chief. They lay offerings of milk and flesh on the grave and out of their plant. Look, O father, upon your beloved cattle and children. They suffer distress. They are so lean, they are dying of hunger. Give us rain. The ears of the spectator are defined by the lowing and bleating of herds and flocks, the shouts of herdsmen, the barking of dogs, and the screams of women. Among some of the Indian tribes in the region of the Orinoco, it was customary for the relations of a deceased person to disintegrate his bones a year after burial, burn them, and scatter the ashes to the winds, because they believed that the ashes were changed into rain, which the dead man sent in return for his obsequies. The Chinese are convinced that when human bodies remain unburied, the souls of their late owners feel the discomfort of rain, just as living men would do if they were exposed to their shelter to the inclemency of the weather. These rich souls, therefore, do all in their power to prevent the rain from falling, and often their efforts are only too successful. Then drought ensures, 
the most dreaded of all calamities in china because bad harvest dearth and famine follow in its train hence it has been a common practice of the chinese authorities in time of drought to inter the dry bones of the unburied dead for the purpose of putting an end to the scourge and conjuring down the rain making rain by means of animals animals again often play an important part in these weather charms the anula tribe of northern australia associate the dollar bird with rain and call it the rain bird a man who has the bird for his totem can make rain at a certain pool he hatches the snake puts it alive into the pool and after holding it under water for a time takes it out kills it and lays it down by the side of the creek then he makes an arched bundle of grass stalks in imitation of a rainbow and sets it up over the snake after that all he does is to sing over the snake and the mimic rainbow sooner or later the rain will fall they explain this procedure by saying that long ago the dollar bird had as mate at this spot a snake who lived in the pool and used to make rain by spitting up into the sky till the rainbow and clouds appeared and rain fell the titinjigili of northern australia make rain in an odd way one of them will catch a fat bandicoot and carry it about singing over it till the animal grows very thin and weak then he lets it go and the rain will follow when some of the blackfoot indians were at war in summer and wished to bring on a tempest they would take a kid fox skin and rub it with dirt and water which never failed to be followed by a storm of rain the thompson indians of british columbia think that when the loon calls loud and often it will soon rain and that to mimic the cry of the bird may bring the rain down the fish called the small sculpin which abounds along the rocky shore of norton sound is called by the eskimos the rainmaker they say that if a person takes one of these fish in his hand heavy rain will follow if ain't no fishermen desire to bring on rain and wind they pray to the skulls of raccoons and then throw water of each other should they wish the storm to increase they put on gloves and caps of raccoon skin and dance then it blows great guns in mahalang a district of upper burma when rain is scarce the people pray to a certain fish called nya yan and send it they also catch some fish and put them in a tub while offerings of plantains and other food are made to the monks in the name of the fish after that the fish are let loose in a stream or pond with gold leaves stuck on their heads if live fish are not to be had wooden ones are used and answer the purpose just as well when the chiris and man of war wish to make rain they catch a crab and put it in a pot of water then the headman goes to the gate of the village and keeps lifting the crab out of the water and putting it back into it till he is tired an ancient indian mode of making rain was to throw an otter into the water if the sky refuses rain and the cattle are perishing an arab sheik will sometimes stand in the middle of the camp and cry redeem yourselves o people redeem ourselves at these words every family sacrifices a sheep divides it in two and hanging the pieces on two poles passes between them children too young to walk are carried by their mother but this custom has rather the appearance of a sacrifice than of a charm the southern salives people try to make rain by carrying a cat tied in a sedan chair thrice round the parched fields while they trench it with water from bamboo squirts when the cat begins to meow they say o oh lord let rain fall on us a common way of making rain in many parts of java is to bathe a cat or two cats a male and a female sometimes the animals are carried in procession with music even in batavia you may from time to time see children going about with a cat for this purpose when they have ducked it in a pool they let it go often in order to give effect to the rain charm the animal must be black 
thus an ancient indian way of bringing on rain was to set a black horse with his face to the west and rub him with a black cloth till he neighed in the benai chogran tribe of northern africa women lead a black cow in procession while other women sprinkle the whole group with water as a means of wringing a shower from the sky to procure rain the peruvian indians used to set a black sheep in a field pulled chica over it and give the animal nothing to eat until the rain fell once when a drought lasting five months had burnt up their pastures and withered the corn the kaffirs of natal had recourse to a famous witch who promised to procure rain without delay a black sheep having been produced an incision was made in the animal near the shoulder and the gall taken out part of this the witch rubbed over her own person part she drank part was mixed with medicine some of the medicine was then rubbed on her body the rest of it attached to a stick was fixed in the fence of a cow's pen the woman next harangued the clouds when the sheep was to be cooked a new fire was procured by the friction of fire sticks in ordinary circumstances a brand would have been taken from one of the huts among the wambugwe a bantu people of western africa when the sorcerer desires to make rain he takes a black sheep and a black calf in bright sunshine and has them placed on the roof of a large common hut in which the people live together then he slits open the stomachs of the animals and scatters their contents in all directions after that he pours water and medicine into a vessel if the charm has succeeded the water boils up and rain follows on the other hand if the sorcerer wishes to prevent rain from falling he withdraws into the interior of the hut and there heats a rock crystal in a calabash in order to procure rain the wagogo of germany east africa sacrificed black fowls black sheep and black cattle at the graves of dead ancestors and the rainmaker wears black clothes during the rainy season among the matabele the rain charm employed by sorcerers was made from the blood and gall of a black ox in a district of sumatra in order to procure rain all the women of the village scantily clad go into the river wade into it and splash each other with the water a black cat is thrown into the stream and made to swim about for a while then allowed to escape to the bank pursued by the splashing women the garros of assam offer a black goat on the top of a very high mountain in time of drought in all these cases the colour of the animal is part of the charm being black it will darken the sky with rain clouds so the bekonos burn the stomach of an ox at evening because they say the black smoke will gather the clouds and cause the rain to come the timorese sacrifice a black pig to the earth goddess for rain a white or red one to the sun god for sunshine the angoli a tribe of zulu descent to the north of the zambezi sacrifice a black ox for rain and a white one for fine weather among the high mountains of japan there is a district in which if rain has not fallen for a long time a party of villagers goes in procession to the bed of a mountain torrent headed by a priest who leads a black dog at the chosen spot they teft the beast to a stone and make it a target for their bullets and arrows when its life-blood bespatters the rocks the peasants throw down their weapons and lift up their voices in supplication to the dragon divinity of the stream exhorting him to send down forthwith a shower to cleanse the spot from its defilement custom has prescribed that on these occasions the colour of the victim shall be black as an emblem of the wished-for rain clouds if fine weather is wanted the victim must be white without a spot frogs and toads in relation to rain the intimate association of frogs and toads of water has earned for these creatures a widespread reputation as custodians of rain and hence they often play a part in charms designed to draw needed showers from the sky some of the indians of the orinoco held the toad to be the god or lord of the waters 
and for that reason feared to kill the creature even when they were ordered to do so they have been known to keep frogs under a pot and to beat them with rods when there was a drought it is said that the aymara indians of peru and bolivia often make little images of frogs and other aquatic animals and place them on the tops of the hills as a means of bringing down rain in some parts of southeastern australia where the rainfall is apt to be excessive the natives feared to injure Taitale, the frog or bluck the bullfrog because they were said to be full of water instead of intestines and great rains would follow if one of them were killed the frog family was often referred as the bunjil wulung or mr rain a tradition ran that once upon a time long ago the frog drank up all the water in the lakes and rivers and then sat in the dry reed bed swollen to enormous size saying bluck bluck in a deep gurgling voice all the other animals wandered about gaping and gasping for a drop of moisture but finding none they agreed they must all die of thirst unless they could contrive to make the frog laugh so they tried one after the other but for a long time in vain at last the conger eel and his relations hung around the lake grass and gay seaweed reared themselves on their tails and pranced round the fire this was too much for the frog he opened his mouth and laughed till the water ran out and the lakes and streams were full once more we have seen that some of the queensland aborigines imitate the movements and cries of frogs as part of a rain charm the tom swarty river indians of british columbia and some people in europe think that to kill a frog brings on rain nor to procure rain people of low caste in the central provinces of india will tie a frog to a rod covered in green leaves and branches of the nim tree azadiracta indica and carry it from door to door singing send sooner frog the jewel of water and ripen the wheat and mill it in the field in Kumaon, a district northwestern India, one way of bringing on rain when it is needed is to hang a frog with its mouth up on a tall bamboo or on a tree for a day or two. The notion is that the god of rain, seeing the creature in trouble, will take pity on it and send the rain. In the district of Muzaffarpur, in India, the vulgar believe that the cry of a frog is most readily heard by the god of rain. Hence, in a year of drought, the low-caste females of a village assemble at evening and put a frog in a small earthen pot together with water taken from five different houses. The pot with the frog is in place in the hollow wooden cup into which the lever used for pounding rice falls. Being raised to the foot and then allowed to drop, the lever crushes the frog to death, and while the creature emits his dying croak, the women sing songs in a loud voice about the dearth of water. The capas or redis are a large and prosperous caste of cultivators and landowners in the madras presidency when rain falls women of the caste will catch a frog and tie it alive to a new winnowing fan made of bamboo on this fan they spread a few margosa leaves and go from door to door singing lady frog must have her bath o rain god give her a little water for her at least while the kapu women sing this song the woman of the house pours water over the frog and gives in alms convinced that by so doing she will soon bring rain down in torrents Again, in order to procure rain, the Malas, who are the pariahs of the Telugu country in southern India, tie a live frog to a mortar and put a mud figure of Gontil Ayalama over it. Then they carry the mortar, frog, and all in procession, singing, Mother Frog, playing in water, pour rain by pots full, while the villagers of the caste pour water over them. Beliefs like these might easily develop into a worship of frogs, regarded as personifying the powers of water and rain. In the Rikavida, there is a hymn about frogs which appears to be substantially a rain charm. The Nuwars, the aboriginal inhabitants of Nepal, worship the frog as a creature associated with the demigod Nagas. In the production, a control of rain and the water supply on which the welfare of the crops depends.
a sacred character is attributed to the little animal and every care is taken not to molest or injure it the worship of the frogs performed on the seventh day of the month of kartik october usually at a pool which is known to be frequented by frogs although it is not essential to the efficiency of the rite that a frog should be actually seen at the time after carefully washing his face and hands the priest takes five brazen bowls and places in them five separate offerings namely rice flowers milk and vermilion ghee and incense and water lighting the pile of ghee and incense the priest says hail parem spada buminatha i pray you receive these offerings and send us timely rain and bless our crops suggested explanation of connection of frog with rain some of these customs and belief may be at least in part based on the frog's habit of storing up water in its body against seasons of drought when it is caught at such times it squirts the water out in a jet on seeing a frog amid a gush of water when all around was dry and parched savages might easily infer that the creature had caused the drought by swallowing all the water and that in order to restore its moisture to the thirsty ground they had only to make the frog disgorge its secret store of the precious liquid stopping rain by means of rabbits and serpents among some tribes of south africa when too much rain falls the wizard accompanied by a large crowd repairs to the house of a family where there has been no death for a very long time and there he burns the skin of a coney as it burns he shouts the rabbit is burning and the cry is taken up by the whole crowd who continue shouting until they are exhausted this no doubt is supposed to stop the rain equally effective is a method adopted by gypsies in australia when the rain has continued to pour steadily for a long time to the great discomfort of the homeless vagrants the men of the band assemble at a river and divide themselves into two parties some of them cut branches with which to make a raft while the others collect hazel leaves and cover the raft with them on which thereupon lays a dried serpent wrapped in white rags on the raft which is then carried by several men to the river women are not allowed to be present at this part of the ceremony while the procession moves towards the river the witch marches behind the raft singing a song of which the burden is a statement that gypsies do not like water and have no urgent need of serpent's milk coupled with the expression of a hope that the serpent may see his way to swallow the water that he may run to his mother and drink milk from her breasts and that the sun may shine out bringing back mirth and jollity to gypsy hearts transylvanian gypsies will sometimes expose the dried carcass of a serpent to the pouring rain in order that the serpent may convince himself of the inclemency of the weather and so grant the people's wish doing violence to the being who controls the weather this last custom is an example of an entirely different mode of procuring rain to which people sometimes have recourse in extreme cases when the drought is long and their temper short at such times they will drop the usual hocus-pocus of imitative magic altogether and being far too angry to waste their breath in prayer they seek by threats and curses or even downright physical force to extort the waters of heaven from the supernatural being who has so to say cut them off at the main thus in muzaffarnagar a town of the punjab when the rains are excessive the people draw a figure of a certain muni or rishi agastya on a loincloth and put it out in the rain or they paint his figure on the outside of the house and let the rain wash it off this muni or rishi agastya is a great personage in the native folklore and enjoys the reputation of being able to stop the rain it is supposed that he will exercise his powers as soon as he is thus made to feel in effigy the misery of wet weather on the other hand when rain is wanted at chatarpur a native state in bundelkhand they paint two figures with their legs up and their heads down on a wall that faces east one of the figures represents indra the other mekar raja the lord of rain 
they think that in this uncomfortable position these powerful beings will soon be glad to send the much-needed showers in a japanese village when the guardian divinity has long been deaf to the peasants prayers for rain they at last throw down his image and with curses loud and long hurled it it head foremost into the stinking rice-field there they said you may stay yourself for a while and see how you will feel after a few days scorching in this broiling sun that is burning the life from our cracked fields in the light circumstances the feloups of senegambia cast down their fetishes and drag them about the fields cursing them till rain falls in okunumura a japanese village not far from tokyo when rain is wanted an artificial dragon is made out of straw reeds bamboos of magnolia leaves preceded by a shinto priest attended by men carrying paper flags and followed by others beating a big drum the dragon is carried in a procession from the buddhist temple and finally thrown into a waterfall when the spirits withhold rain or sunshine the comanches whip a slave if the gods prove obstinate the victim is almost flayed alive chinese modes of compelling the gods to give rain the chinese are adepts in the art of taking the kingdom of heaven by storm thus when rain is wanted they make a huge dragon of paper or wood to represent the rain god and carry it about in procession but if no rain follows the mock dragon is executed torn to pieces at other times they threaten and beg the god if it does not give rain sometimes they publicly dispose of him from the rank of deity on the other hand if the wished-for rain falls the god is promoted to a higher rank by an imperial decree it is said that in the reign of kai king fifth emperor of the manchu dynasty a long drought desolated several provinces of northern china processions were of no avail the rain dragon hardened his heart and would not let a drop fall at last the emperor lost patience and condemned the recalcitrant deity to perpetual exile on the banks of the river Ili in the province of Tordogot. the decree was in process of execution the divine criminal with a touching resignation was already traversing the deserts of tartary to work out his sentence on the borders of Turkestan, when the judges of the high court of peking moved with compassion flung themselves at the feet of the emperor and implored his pardon for the poor devil the emperor consented to revoke his doom and a messenger set off at full gallop to bear the tidings to the executors of the imperial justice the dragon was reinstated in his office on condition of performing his duties a little better in future about the year seventeen ten the island of Songming, which belongs to the province of nanking was afflicted with the drought the viceroy of the province after the usual attempts to soften the heart of the local deity by burning incense sticks had been made in vain sent word to the idol that if rain did not fall by such and such a day he would have turned out of the deity and his temple raised to the ground the threat had no effect on the obdurate divinity the day of grace came and went and yet no rain fell then the indignant viceroy forbade the people to make any more offerings at the shrine of his unfeeling deity and commanded that the temple should be shut up and seals placed on the doors cut off from his base of supplies the idol had no choice but to surrender at discretion rain fell in a few days and thus the god was restored to the affections of the faithful in some parts of china the mandarins procure rain or fine weather by shutting the southern or the northern gates of the city for the south wind brings drought and the north wind brings showers hence by closing the southern opening the northern gates you clearly exclude drought and admit rain whereas contrawise by shutting the northern and opening the southern gates you bar out the clouds and the wet and let in sunshine and genial warmth in april eighteen eighty eight the mandarins of canton prayed to the god lung wong to stop the incessant downpour of rain and when he turned a deaf ear to their petitions they put him in a lock-up of five days this had a salutary effect 
the rain ceased and the god was restored to liberty. Some years before, in times of drought, the same deity had been changed and exposed to the sun for days in the courtyard of his temple, in order that he might feel for himself the urgent need of rain. Siamese modes of constraining the gods to give rain. So when the Siamese need rain, they set out their idols in the blazing sun, but if they want dry weather, they unroof the temples and let the rain pour down on the idols. They think their inconvenience to which the gods are thus subjugated will induce them to grant the wishes of their worshippers. When the rice crop is endangered by a long drought, the governor of Bantamang, a province of Siam, goes in great state to a certain pagoda and prays to border for rain. Then, accompanied by his suit and followed by an enormous crowd, he adjourns to a plain behind the pagoda. Here a dummy figure is being made up, dressed in bright colours and placed in the middle of the plain. A wild music begins to play, maddened by the din of drums and cymbals and crackers, and goaded on by the drivers. The elephants charge down on the dummy and trample it to pieces. After this, Buddha will soon give rain. Compelling the Saints to Give Rain in Sicily The reader may smile at the meteorology of the Far East, but precisely similar modes of recurring rain have been resorted to in Christian Europe within our own lifetime. By the end of April 1893, there was great distress in Sicily for lack of water. The drought had lasted six months. Every day the sun rose and set in a sky of cloudless blue. The gardens of the Concatiora, which surrounded Palermo with a magnificent belt of verdure, were withering. Food was becoming scarce. The people were in great alarm. All the most approved methods of procuring rain had been tried without effect. Processions had traversed the streets and the fields. Men, women and children, telling their beads, had lain whole nights before the holy images. Consecrated candles had burned day and night in the churches. Palm branches, blessed on Palm Sunday, had been hung in the trees. Asola Paruta, in accordance with a very old custom, the dust swept from the churches on Palm Sunday had been spread on the fields. In ordinary years, these holy sweepings preserved the crops. But that year, if you will believe me, they had no effect whatever. At Nicusia, the inhabitants bareheaded and barefoot carried the crucifixes through the wards of the town and scourged each other with iron whips. It was all in vain. Even the great St. Francis of Paola himself, who annually performs the miracle of rain and is carried every spring through the market gardens, either could not or would not help. Masses, vespers, concerts, illuminations, fireworks, nothing could move him. At last the peasants began to lose patience. Most of the saints were banished. At Palermo they dumped St. Joseph in a garden to see the state of things for himself, and they swore to leave him there in the sun till rain fell. Other saints were turned like naughty children with their faces to the wall. Others again, stripped of their beautiful robes, were exiled far from their parishes, threatened, grossly insulted, ducked in horse bonds. At Caltanisetta, the golden wings of St. Michael, the archangel, were torn from his shoulders and replaced with wings of pasteboard. His purple mantle was taken away, and a clout wrapped about him instead. At Lucata, the patron, St. Angelo, fared even worse, for he was left without any garments at all. He was reviled, he was put in irons, he was threatened with drowning or hanging. Rain or the rope, or the angry crowd to him, as they shook their fists in his face. Disturbing the rain god in his haunts Another way of constraining the rain god is to disturb him in his haunts. This seems to be the reason why rain is supposed to follow the troubling of a sacred spring. The Dards believe that if a cow skin or anything impure is placed in certain springs, storms will follow. In the mountains of Fargana, there was a place where rain began to fall as soon as anything dirty was thrown into a certain famous well. Again, in Tabaristan, there was said to be a cave in the mountain of Tak, which had only to be defiled by filth or milk 
for the rain to begin to fall, and to continue falling till the cave was cleansed. Gervasius mentions a spring, into which, if a stone or a stick were thrown, rain would at once issue from it and drench thrower. There was a fountain in Munster, such that if it were touched or even looked at by a human being, it would at once flood the whole province with rain. In Normandy, a wizard will sometimes repair to a spring, sprinkle flour it, and sprinkle the water with a hazel rod while he chants his spell. A mist then rises from the spring and condenses in the shape of heavy clouds, which discharge volleys of hail on the orchards and cornfields. When rain was long of coming in the Canary Islands, the priestesses used to beat the sea with rods to punish the water spirit for his niggardliness. Among the natural curiosities of Amman are the caves of Chorhang, or Trok. You may sail into them in a boat underground for a distance of half a mile, and a little way further in you come to the remains of an ancient altar among magnificent stalactite columns. The Ammonites worship the spirit of the cave and offer sacrifices at its mouth in time of drought. From all the villages in the neighbourhood come boats, the boatmen singing, let it rain, let it rain, in time to the measured dip of their oars on the water, arrived at the mouth of the cave. They offer rice and wine to the spirit, prostrating themselves four times before him. Then the master of the ceremonies recites a prayer, ties a written copy to the neck of a dog, and flings the animal into the stream, which flows from the grotto. This is done in order to provoke the spirit of the cave to anger by defiling his pure water, for he will then send abundant rains to sweep far away the, the carcass of the dead dog which pollutes the sacred grotto. Putting Compassion on the Rain God Two hundred miles to the east of the land of the Huchol Indians in Mexico, there is a sacred spring, and away to the west of their country stretches the Pacific Ocean. To ensure the fall of rain, these Indians carry water from the spring to the sea, and an equal quantity of sea water from the sea to the spring. The two waters thus transferred will, they think, feel strange in their new surroundings, and will seek to return to their old homes. Hence they will pass, in the shape of clouds, across the Huachol country, and meeting there will descend as rain, exciting the pity of the beings who control the rain. Sometimes an appeal is made to the pity of the gods. When their corn is being burnt up by the sun, the Zulus look out for a heaven bird, kill it, and throw it into a pool. Then the heaven melts with tenderness for the death of the bird. It wails for it by raining, wailing, a funeral wail. In Zululand, women sometimes bury their children up to the neck in the ground, and then, retiring to a distance, keep up a dismal howl for a long time. The sky is supposed to melt with pity at the sight. Then the women dig the children out, and feel sure that the rain will soon follow. They say that they call to the Lord above and ask him to send rain. If it comes, they declare that Usondo reigns. In times of drought, the Guanches of Tenerife led their sheep to sacred ground, and there they separated the lambs from their dams, that their plaintive bleating might touch the heart of the god. In Kuamon, a way of stopping rain is to pour hot oil in the left ear of a dog. The animal howls of pain, his howls are heard by Indra, and out of pity for the beast suffering, the god stops the rain. Sometimes the Tarajas of central Salibs attempt to procure rain as follows. They place the stalks of certain plants in water, saying, Go and ask for rain, and so long as no rain falls, I will not plant you again, but there shall you die. Also, they string some fresh water snails on a cord, and hang the cord on a tree, and say to the snails, Go and ask for rain, and so long as no rain comes, I will not take you back to the water. Then the snails go and weep, and the gods take pity and send rain. However, the foregoing ceremonies are religious rather than magical, since they involved an appeal to the compassion of high powers. A peculiar mode of making rain was adopted by some of the heathen Arabs, 
They tied two sorts of bushes to the tails and hind legs of their cattle, and setting fire to the bushes, drove the cattle to the top of a mountain, praying for rain. This may be, as well Horson suggests, an imitation of lightning on the horizon, but it may also be a way of threatening the sky, as some West African rainmakers put a pile of inflammable materials on the fire and blow up the flames, threatening that if heaven does not soon give rain, they will send up a blaze which will set the sky on fire. In time of drought, the priests of the Maiskas in New Granada ascend a mountain, and there burned billets of wood smeared with resin. The ashes they scattered in the air, thinking thus to condense the clouds and bring rain, making rain by means of stones. Stones are often supposed to possess the property of bringing on rain, provided they be dipped in water or sprinkled with it, or treated in some other appropriate manner. In a Samoan village, a certain stone was carefully housed as the representative of the rain-making god, and in time of drought, his priests carried the stone in procession and dipped it in a stream. Among the Tata Thi tribe of New South Wales, the rainmaker breaks off a piece of quartz crystal and spits it towards the sky. The rest of the crystal wraps in emu feathers, soaks both crystal and feathers in water, and carefully hides them. In the Karamin tribe of New South Wales, the wizard retires to the bed of a creek, drops water on a round flat stone, then covers up and conceals it. Among some tribes in northwestern Australia, the rainmaker repairs to a piece of ground which is set apart for the purpose of rainmaking. There he builds a heap of stones or sand, places on the top of it his magic stone, and walks or dances round the pile, chanting his incantations for hours, till sheer exhaustion obliges him to desist, when his place is taken by his assistant. Water is sprinkled on the stone, and huge fires are kindled. No layman may approach the sacred spot while the mystic ceremony is being performed. When the Salker of New Britain wished to procure rain, they blackened stones with the ashes of certain fruits, and set them out, along with certain other plants and buds in the sun. Then a handful of twigs is dipped in water, and weighed with stones, while a spell is chanted. After that rain should follow, in Manipur, on a lofty hill in the east of the capital, there is a stone which the popular imagination likens to an umbrella. When rain is wanted, the Raja fetches water from a spring below and sprinkles it on the stone. At Sagami in Japan, there is a stone which draws down rain whenever water is poured on it. When the Wakondyo, a tribe of Central Africa, desired rain, they sent to the Wewamba, who dwells at the foot of snowy mountains, and are the happy possessors of a rainstone. In consideration of a proper payment, the Wewamba washed the precious stone, anointed it with oil, and put it in a pot full of water. After the rain cannot fail to come, in Bihar people think that to put an end to drought by keeping a holy stone named Narayan Chakra in a vessel of water. The Turks of Armenia make rain by throwing pebbles into the water. At Egin the pebbles are hung in two bags in the Euphrates. There should be seventy thousand and one of them. At Myandus in Asia Minor the number of the stones used for the, this purpose is seventy thousand and each of them should be licked before it is cast into the sea. Bezoa stones as instruments of rain. In some parts of Mongolia, when the people desire rain, they fasten a bezoa stone to a willow twig and place it in pure water, uttering incantations or prayers at the same time. At Yakutsch, all classes used firmly to believe they could make rain by means of one of these bezoa stones, provided it had really been found in the stomach of an animal, and the fiercer the beast, the more powerful the charm. The rainmaker had to dip the stone in spring water just as the sun rose, and then holding it between the thumb and the forefinger of the right hand to present it to the luminary, after which 
he made three turns contrary to the direction of the sun. The virtue of the bazaar stone lasted only nine days. Conversely, when Dr. Radloff's Mongolian guide wished to stop the rain, he tied a rock crystal by a short string to a stick, held the stone over the fire, and swung the stick about in all directions, while he chanted an incantation. Water is scarce with the fierce Apaches, who roam the arid wastes of Arizona and New Mexico. The springs are few and far between in these torrid wildernesses, where the intense heat would be unendurable were it not for the great dryness of the air. The stony beds of the streams are waterless in the plains. But if you ascend for some miles, the profound canyons that worm their way into the heart of the wild and rugged mountains, you come in time to a current trickling over the sand, and a mile or two more will bring you to a stream of a tolerable size flowing over boulders and screened from the fierce sun by walls of rock that tower on either hand a thousand feet into the air. Their parched sides matted with the fantastic forms of the prickly cactus, and their summits crested far overhead with pine woods, like a black fringe against the burning blue of the sky. In such a land we need not wonder that the thirsty Indians seek to procure rain by magic. They take water from a certain spring and throw it on a particular point high up on a rock. The welcome clouds then soon gather, and rain begins to fall. In the district of Aranda, in Armenia, there is a rock with a hole in it near a sacred place. Women light candles on the rock and pour water into the hole in order to bring on rain. As in the same district, there is another rock in which water is poured and milk boiled as offering in time of drought. Making rain by means of stones in Europe. But customs of this sort are not confined to the worlds of Africa and Asia or the torrid deserts of Australia and the New World. They have been practiced in the cool air and under the grey skies of Europe. There is a fountain called Barentin, of romantic fame, in those wild woods of Brasiliand, where, if legend be true, the wizard Merlin still sleeps his magic slumber in the hawthorn shade. Thither the Breton peasants used to resort when they needed rain. They caught some of the water in a tankard and threw it on a slab near the spring. On Snowdon there was a lonely tarn called Dunlin or the Black Lake, lying in a dismal stingle surrounded by high and dangerous rocks. A row of stepping stones runs out into the lake, and if anyone steps on the stones and throws water so as to wet the farther stone, which is called the Red Altar, it is but a chance that you do not get rain before night, even when it is hot weather. In these cases it appears probable that, as in Samoa, the stones regarded as more or less divine. This appears from the custom sometimes observed in dipping the cross in the fountain of Barrenton to procure rain, for this is plainly a Christian substitute for the old pagan way of throwing water on the stone. Dipping Images of Saints in Water as a Rain Charm At various places in France it is, or used till lately to be, the practice to dip the image of a saint in water as a means of procuring rain. Thus, beside the old priory of Comagui, a mile or two on the southwest of Moulins Engelbert, there is a spring of St. Gervais, whither the inhabitants go in procession to obtain rain or fine weather according to the needs of the crops. In times of great drought, they throw into the basin of the fountain an ancient stone image of the saint that stands in a sort of niche from which the fountain flows. At Colobriers and Carpentres, both in Provence, a similar practice was observed with the image of St. Pons and St. Jens, respectively. In several villages in Avare, prayers for rain used to be offered to St. Peter, and by way of enforcing them, the villagers carried the image of the saint in procession to the river, where they thrice invited him to reconsider his resolution and to grant their prayers. Then, if he was still obstinate, they plunged him in the water. 
despite the remonstrances of the clergy who pleaded with as much truth as brady that a simple caution or admonition administered to the image would produce an equally good effect after this the rain was sure to fall within twenty-four hours catholic countries do not enjoy a monopoly of making rain by ducking holy images in water in Mingrelia, when the crops are suffering from want of rain they take a particularly holy image and dip it in water every day till a shower falls and in the far east the chans drench the images of buddha with water when the rice is perishing of drought in all such cases the practice is probably at bottom a sympathetic charm however it may be disguised under the appearance of a punishment or a threat various rain charms by means of stones the application of water to a miraculous stone is not the only way of securing its good offices in the making of rain in the island of Ust, one of the outer Hebrides, there is a stone cross opposite to St. Mary's Church, which the natives used to call the water cross. When they needed rain, they set the cross up, and when enough rain had fallen, they laid it flat on the ground. In Aurora, one of the new Hebrides islands, the rainmaker puts a tuft of leaves of a certain plant in the hollow of a stone. Over it, he lays some branches of a pepper tree, pounded and crushed, and of these, he adds a stone which is believed to possess the property of drawing down showers from the sky. All this he accompanies with incantations, and, and finally covers the whole mass up. In time it ferments, and steam, charged with magical virtue, goes up and makes clouds and rain. The wizard must be careful, however, not to pound the pepper too hard, as otherwise the wind might blow too strong. Sometimes a stone derives its magical virtue from its likeness to a real or imaginary animal. Thus a kota kadang, in Sumatra, there is a stone which, with the help of a powerful imagination, may perhaps be conceived to bear a faint and distant resemblance to a cat. Naturally, therefore, it possesses the property of eliciting showers from the sky, since in Sumatra, as we have seen, a real black cat plays the part in ceremonies for the production of rain. Hence the stone is sometimes smeared with the blood of fowls, rubbed and incensed, while the charm is uttered over it. Adonete, in Washington State, there is an irregular basaltic rock on which a face said to be that of the thunderbird has been hammered the indians of the neighbourhood long believed that to shake the rock would cause rain by exciting the wrath of the thunderbird rain charms in classical antiquity like other peoples the greeks and romans sought to obtain rain by magic when prayers and processions had proved ineffectual for example in arcadia when the corn and trees were parched with drought the priest of zeus dipped an oak branch in a certain spring on mount Lysias. Thus troubled, the water sent up a misty cloud, from which rain soon fell upon the land. A similar mode of making rain is still practised, as we have seen, in Halmahira, near New Guinea. The people of Cranon in Thessaly had a bronze chariot which they kept in a temple. When they desired a shower, they shook the chariot, and the shower fell. Probably the rattling of the chariot was meant to imitate thunder. We have already seen that mock thunder and lightning form part of the rain charm in Russia and Japan. The legendary Salmonius, king of Elis, made mock thunder by dragging bronze kettles behind his chariot or by driving over a bronze bridge, while he heard blazing torches in imitation of lightning. It was his impious wish to mimic the thundering car of Zeus as it rolled across the vaults of heaven. Indeed, he declared that he was actually Zeus, and caused sacrifices to be offered to himself as such. Near a temple of Mars outside the walls of Rome, there was kept a certain stone known as the Lapis Manalis. In times of drought, the stone was dragged in Rome, and this was supposed to bring down rain immediately. There were Trustan wizards who made rain or discovered springs of water, it is not certain which. They were thought to bring the rain or the water out of their bellies. 
the legendary telchines in Rhodes are described as magicians who could change their shape and bring clouds, rain, and snow. The Athenians sacrificed boiled, not roast meat, to the seasons, begging them to avert drought and try heat and descend due warmth and timely rain. This is an interesting example of the admixture of religion with sorcery, of sacrifice with magic. The Athenians dimly conceived that, in some way, the water in the pot would be transmitted through the boiled meat to the deities, and then sent down again by them in the form of rain. In a similar spirit, the prudent Greeks made it as a rule always to pour honey, but never wine on the altars of the sun-god, pointing out with great show of reason how expedient it was that a god on whom so much dependence should keep strictly sober. End of section 11「Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go! Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the US, more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.